upon him. I love that, the way they describe it. Like fear falls upon you. We don't use that in modern day English, right? But you can just imagine he is skrukt. He is really scared. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call him his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Sound familiar to Malachi? John is the fulfillment of that promise. In the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So after 400 years of barrenness, there's this sliver of hope. God is on the move again. Someone set aside for God to be be part of fulfilling what Malachi promised. And there's this parallel taking place here. If you think, cast your mind back to Abraham and Sarah, or Abraham and Sarai as they were known back then. Barren, God choosing them to institute a new way of working in the world. Over here, Zechariah and Elizabeth, God choosing them to be part of his new way of working in the world. This, this parallel that Luke is drawing our attention to. God is doing something new here. This is not the same as before. This is not a vision given to a prophet. This is an angel appearing in the temple. Something amazing is happening. And it's incredible because we see Zechariah as a priest. He would be praying for the nation of Israel. And I'm sure in his personal prayers for himself and his family, he would have prayed for a child possibly hundreds of times. And now, today is the day that that prayer is answered. God working in his way for his purposes in his time. And it tells us here that uh, you should call his name John, which is not a family name. Many times the tradition was you'd name someone uh, in your, your lineage. And John means, translated, the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. And I just love it because Jesus' name, or Yeshua, uh, it means the Lord saves. So God, in orchestrating things together, also Jesus or Yeshua wasn't a family name in Mary and Joseph, but it's the one that's preparing the way for Jesus is the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious is preparing the way for the Lord saves. Isn't that beautiful? Just that tantalizing imagery that God weaves into the way he works. He's saying, wait a minute, this is not by chance. I want you, that's your name to prepare for that's your name. Love it. And the angel tells of the future of John, saying, And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he did prepare the way for Jesus. What the angel did not say is that at around age 30, 31, 32, John would ultimately be killed. He would be beheaded for standing up against the sinfulness of the leaders of the time. It tells us uh, in early verses, saying, I'm going to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, but those who didn't want that hated him. And so again, it tells us here that he will be great before the Lord does not remove suffering. Does not, did not, being great before the Lord, being righteous before the Lord, did not protect John from being imprisoned and ultimately killed. And it doesn't make sense to us in our earthly kind of thinking. We would say, no, if that's the greatest man next to Jesus... Why didn't God protect him? 
Why didn't God stop that from happening? Our, our, our typical human brain, when we're saying, there's a goodie, there's a baddie. Like when we watch movies or TV shows or whatever when we were a kid, there's always a goodie and a baddie. And by the end of the story, the baddie gets in trouble and the goodie wins the day. And so when life happens and it doesn't match that, we can have dis- disappointment and frustration. I'm going to come back to that. I'm getting ahead of myself again. So the next major point to draw out of this text is that God is faithful to accomplish his purposes. God is faithful to accomplish his plans and his purposes. He is at work. Even in the midst of dark and barren times, God is still moving. He is still orchestrating things for his purposes. The promise of Malachi is coming to be fulfilled in John. He's on the move, breaking into barren times. And so even today, we can trust God in the barrenness of what we're experiencing now. We can trust God to be at work. We might not see it with eyes or recognize it in terms of our earthly understanding of what God is like. And for many people, you might feel like you're in a barren season. You might feel like the people of God over 400 years, where it feels like God is silent, where it feels like God is not there, where it feels like you, Zechariah and Elizabeth, waiting for a child for decades. Some of the barren seasons that you might uh, find yourself in might be joblessness. It might be being far away from family. It might be having a, a, a family reality that is not what you hoped for. It might be being single, being childless, being lonely. That might be the barren season that you're experiencing now. But what we can trust in is that God is faithful to accomplish his purposes. He will break in, in his time, according to his plans. That's the God we serve. But the challenge is, and this is where faith is required, the timing of his breaking in might not match our timetable. (laughs) Ever experienced that? I'm trusting God to do this, but God, please do it by next Friday. Right? <laughs> and our hopes are in a timetable that, that matches our hopes and dreams. And I think that's fairly natural. But what we see here, the people of God calling out to God for 400 years, 400 years, 10 generations. Apparently God being silent. And then people taking efforts into their own hands. And if you read some of the intertestamental uh, things, you see some of the people saying, we're going to overthrow these oppressors and going to war and getting crushed, going to war and getting crushed, saying, we're not going to wait for God to intervene. We're going to do this ourselves. So how does Zechariah respond to God breaking in with this promise of hope? (laughs) Verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. I hope he didn't say that to her. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, 
Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So God intervenes. He fulfills on his promise. But what do we learn from Zechariah's response here? He, he responds with disbelief. How shall I know this? For I'm old. My wife is advanced in years. Maybe after praying and praying and praying and trusting for a child, he just couldn't believe it anymore. It's not possible. Maybe he was stuck in his logical mind saying, the doctor has said this, it's not going to happen. Even if God says so, even standing next to the altar of incense when an angel appears and fear falls upon me, I'm still not going to believe. My logical brain says this can't happen. And, and I think it's at this point I want to talk, just kind of step a little bit aside. We spoke about disbelief, but I also want to speak about disappointment and bitterness. Disappointment and bitterness. And I was trying to pull these two things apart and saying there's sometimes when we get really bad news, often comes in the form of a phone call or a WhatsApp, something tragic has happened. And that's, that's tragedy that we're facing, trauma that we're facing, bad news that we've been notified of, which is a little bit different to disappointment. Disappointment is those kind of things where you're saying, this isn't going the way I thought it would over the long time, months, maybe years, possibly decades. And disappointment saying, this isn't what I hoped for. And so sometimes when we fixate on what we want and what we claim we need and it doesn't work hard, it becomes quite easy to blame God. We say, God, I've been in this situation for years. Why haven't you come through? We start to blame God. We start to resent Him for not acting in the way that we, we want. And so sometimes that sadness or that frustration or that anger, which are fairly normal and natural. I mean, Elizabeth describes her, her life of ta- taking away my reproach, saying, being childless, she felt disgrace. Who did she blame for her disgrace? The disappointment is hard, but it doesn't have to be paired with bitterness. Let me unpack that some more. The barren season that we go through, those things that we experience again over the long haul, this is not that that tragic phone call that we get. It's the, the months or years living far from family, not able to get a job, not able to find a spouse, having a family situation that unraveled. These situations can open the door for bitterness towards God, where we blame God, where bitterness creeps into our hearts and we find it harder and harder to worship Him. He's saying, okay, let's stand and worship when the meeting led us in. Okay, do I have to? Makes it harder and harder. Bitterness makes it harder and harder to spend time with Him willingly makes it harder to read his word because it's just this cloud of bitterness of saying, God, I, I blame you. Might not use those words, but why haven't you done this? You're at fault here. And many times at the heart of bitterness is a lack of faith. It's a lack of belief or lack of faith that, that God knows what he's doing, that God is in control, that he can actually change things and that he cares enough to do something about it. Those are often those kind of beliefs well up within us. When we're struggling with bitterness, we're going, God, do you even care? And we might be able to describe a scripture that tells us, yes, I know God cares, but in our hearts we're going, I don't believe that anymore. I believe that Jesus did this, and we can describe a whole lot of important doctrine, but when it actually comes down to we're saying, God, I don't believe you. 
anymore. And bitterness also grows when we have in, entitlement towards God. I, I mentioned this earlier when we were saying, like, when we do this and we believe God must act in our favor because we've done something, right? God is obliged. We're entitled to blessings. And so we can go into the scriptures, take out a scripture and go, you know what? This is for me. I don't really care about the context around it, and I'm going to name it, and I'm going to claim it. I'm going to put it on a coffee mug. I'm going to stick it up here. But a, a simple verse like, God works all things together. And we just, those few words, I don't know how many times we can throw that into conversation and go, God's working all things together. The challenge is, when we take that out of context and it's not supported by other beliefs that, that uh, go with that, when things don't feel like God is working together, then who's to blame? It's God, because he's got to act on this promise. God said you're going to work all things together, right? But God never promises that he's going to work all things together on our timeline for our comfort. And many, many times that can sneak in there. We long for something that makes us feel more comfortable. God working all things together could look like years and years more of disappointment. That's a hard truth, isn't it? God working things together doesn't mean that by the time you walk out of this meeting today, that situation that is bringing disappointment to you is resolved. I can't do that. I don't know what God is doing in working all things together for his plans and his purposes. I don't know what that sliver of hope, like the announcement of John the Baptist being born, is going to look like for you. When, so to speak, that angel appears and said, this is going to change. I don't know what that looks like. It could be years away in the future. And I want to speak to that opportunity that bitterness has to creep in there and ruin your faith and bring you down where you're no longer trusting or believing, just resenting and being bitter. Daryl Bock, who uh, writes a commentary on this passage, says, God never guarantees that life will come without pain and disappointment. The central issue is how we handle it. Bitterness will yield the fruit of anger and frustration, sapping the joy from life. Trust and dependence will cause us to find fulfillment in ways we would not even have considered otherwise. And that's where faith comes in. Trusting that the one who is leading us and guiding us and orchestrating all things is in control. And so if you're in a barren season right now, a season of disappointment, a season where you feel like God has let you down, I can't tell if you're blaming God. I don't have that gift to be able to see inside your heart, but you can. That you might have something that's coming to your mind now and saying, God, why? When are you going to move? When are you going to act? When are you going to do something? If you're finding it harder and harder to worship, harder and harder to spend time with God, I'd encourage you to process this with somebody else, to pray with someone, to, to, to explore what's going on, that there might be some beliefs that you're clinging on to that need to be let go of, to allow you to endure disappointments without bitterness. And this is where doubts come in. And, and, doubts, and doubts can easily cr- uh, climb into our hearts in times of disappointment. We see Zechariah immediately doubting. <laughs> so, fear falls upon him and he goes this can't happen I don't believe this is actually going to happen and so disappointment can lead to doubts coming in our hearts but Zechariah seems to be focusing more on his own ability than in God's ability did you pick that up? he's saying 
you know, yes, you're the angel Gabriel in standing in the presence of God, and I'm terrified of you, but I'm still not going to believe. Doubts have crept in. He's focusing on his personal strengths, and he's limiting God to the size of his pain. He's saying, God is not bigger than my disappointment. God is not bigger than my frustration, and so on. So I want to talk a little bit about doubt, because it's not something we often or easily talk about, and I want to unpack it a little bit, that it actually can be quite healthy, that you can grapple with your doubts without bitterness, without resentment towards God. But there's healthy ways of grappling with doubts and unhealthy ways. Healthy doubts are when you're grappling with a difficult faith question, but you're actually looking for answers along with others and looking for answers from God. Let me repeat that again. Grappling with your doubts in a healthy way is asking God for answers and looking in His words and talking to mature believers who can guide you and lead you through. That's grappling with doubts in a healthy way. You know, too often uh, there's, a, there's a question that pops into your mind. Maybe it's something you've experienced or something that somebody else has experienced. Or maybe it's some, that social media post that just gets you thinking and you're going like, this question in my head, I can't seem to get rid of it. And when we keep quiet about it, it becomes bigger and bigger. I don't know if you ever slept uh, at somebody else's house and it's got di- the house has got different noises to your own. You experienced that? And maybe there's this noise coming and you're like, what is that? And it's dark and this, this noise is going, and so this thing becomes bigger and bigger, right? And then you look, look around the room and you see this shape on, in this room and it freaks you out, right? And then you turn on the light and what is it? It's just the, the tree banging against the window. It's something that isn't really that big. And you go, how silly I've been <laughs> thinking this thing is massive when actually it's, it's small-ish, right? And so sometimes these doubts, these questions that we have, we can feel too embarrassed to share with someone saying, I'm, I've been a Christian for this many years, and I'm struggling with this question. And so we don't talk to anybody about it. We keep the light off, and that noise is getting louder and louder, and it's unsettling us. We can't rest because... We have something is bigger than what it actually is. Now, I'm not saying that your doubts are not big issues. I'm not trying to minimize those. What I am encouraging you to do is to turn the light on when assessing those doubts. And by turning the light on, I mean engage and ask God, ask others, look in His Word. Don't try and do it on your own. And sometimes when people doubt, they, they build up a case for themselves, and they try to win other people over, Right? They're not trying to find an answer. They're trying to find a cause. They're trying to find a group of people who will agree with them. They're not actually trying to find something. Another reason why doubts can be helpful is it actually helps us to reach out to others who might be outside of the Christian faith, or maybe even inside the Christian faith who are going through something maybe similar, and you've resolved that doubt in your mind, you're able to minister to them in a way that you wouldn't be able to do if it was just something like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And, and the level of faith is very thin. It's, it's quite interesting when we're talking about doubt because John the baptizer had moments of doubt himself. Think about this. He got imprisoned, and John started having doubts, and he sent two of his followers to go and ask Jesus, are you the one that we, we're supposed to look out for? No. Cast your mind back to when John baptized Jesus. 
He baptizes him in the River Jordan. Heavens open. A dove descends and lands on Jesus. A voice comes out. This is my son in whom I... And there's John saying, here comes the Lamb of God sent to take the sin of the world. He is in prison going, are you the one we're to look out for? A moment of doubt. But John, who does he turn to to find answers to his doubts and his grapples? He doesn't turn to the prisoner next to him. He's saying, I don't think you're going to have the answer to that. I'm going to turn to God. I'm going to turn to Jesus himself to try and resolve this doubt that I have in my mind. And Jesus answers the two followers, and they go back and give the answer to, to John. So John had doubts. Even described, he'll be great. You see this, this prophetic thing. John was great, but he still had doubts, but he grappled with them in the right way. I don't blame him for doubting. Eh? I wouldn't I would have expected, like, hey, Jesus, like, you're my cousin, you're my second cousin, and like, I know you, the Lamb of God sent to take away. Why am I suffering here? It's an understandable grapple that John had, and he went about finding answers to it in the right way. So I'm going to read a portion of, of Tim Keller writing about doubts. It's fairly long. I've only got two excerpts on the, on the screen there. But it says, A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who just go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but their friends and their neighbors. It is no longer sufficient to hold beliefs just because you inherited them. Only if you struggle long and hard with objections to your faith will you be able to provide the grounds for your beliefs to skeptics including yourself, that are plausible rather than ridiculous or offensive. And just as important for our current situation, such a process will lead you, even after you come to a position of strong faith, to respect and understand those who doubt. So often when you mention doubt, Christians go, no, you mustn't doubt at all. That's, that's a sign of weakness. And this helps us to lean in and say the doubts, when you're grappling with them in a healthy way, will strengthen your faith, not weaken it. I have big questions, doubts that I have around COVID. I don't know how to find those answers. But keeping them into my own heart and saying, this is up to me to solve by myself for myself, robs me of the opportunity to strengthen my faith and instead becomes like a stone in the shoe of my faith saying, okay, God, why, why this, why this? Why is church like this? Why, do you, why have you locked us down? So what doubts are you grappling with? It might be related to the barren season of disappointment that we've spoken about already. It might be something that may have lodged in your mind years ago that you haven't resolved. How are you processing those? Are you journeying with someone more mature than you to talk them through and open up Scripture together? Do you actually want an answer to that doubt or that question? Back to Zechariah. Here he is, in the temple, the presence of an angel telling him that a miracle will take place, and Zechariah starts to argue <laughs> with the angel. He doesn't respond to the good news with joy, but with skepticism and disbelief. 
And he tells them, you're going to be mute. And the word there might be mute and deaf. And that comes up later when John is born. And until the child is born. Now, is Zechariah's muteness a punishment? It might be. But it's more like a sign that will bring greater glory to God. He's saying, okay, my tongue is, t- like, tongue is, is tied. I can't speak. And then when the child is born, it was a demonstration again that, yes, you could have believed uh, Zechariah all the way along. And in some ways, I, I like this interpretation. It's, it's almost like saying, okay, Zechariah, if you won't believe me, just keep quiet and watch God work. Not in a mean way, not in a, pun- a punishing way, but just saying like, okay, I know you've got doubts and disbelief, but I'm going to move and work anyway. Watch me get birthed. So the final point, and I've mentioned it several times, is that we can trust God to accomplish his will, his plans, and his purposes, even when we get it wrong. Even when we struggle, God is still gracious. God is still good. Elizabeth falls pregnant. The child is born. And a prophet prepares the way for the coming Messiah. God always has a plan. Even when we can't see it, even in barren times, even when we are struggling, he is at work. And we can trust a God who is at work, who doesn't forget us, who is not obliged to act in our time for our comfort. He is working things together. He's, in this passage, concluding 400 years of barrenness and darkness for the bursting in of his son, bringing light and joy and salvation. I mentioned earlier, I don't know how long your barren season will last. I'm not going to stand up here and promise you that if you do one, two, three, everything will be fine. I don't have that power, authority to change God's plan like that. I don't know how long it will be that your barren season will last. But I do know that God can be trusted through it. I do know that the, tr- that the loving, all-powerful God has not forgotten about you, has not abandoned you, and is working things together for his plans and his purposes. This Christmas, and this is a Christmas message somehow, (laughs) this Christmas, as you think about the birth of Jesus, and when you take the tinsel and the trees and the Santa Claus and all the promotion things at the shops and those Christmas carols that get stuck in your head, whenever you cast your mind onto what Christmas is about, the birth of Jesus... Just remember, Jesus ushered in the breaking in, the, the breaking in of all barrenness. That in him we have life that is truly life. And in him we have hope that is truly hope. Not hope in our own comfort. Not hope in everything working together on our timeline. But hope that good is on the way. That God is working. He has it all together. Can we stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that, that these truths that are locked into your, the story of the, the birth of your son feed us today, that your word is alive and active, it has never expired, it has never reached its best before death, that you are alive and active today in our midst. And so today I pray that you would minister to every person, that those doubts, those disappointments, those points of, of pain and frustration and longing and yearning Won't you satisfy us today, we pray. 
Show us what it means to fix our gaze upon you, Jesus. I pray, show us what it means to trust you, to be led by you, to be fed by you, guided and nurtured by you, even as we go through a season of barrenness or disappointment. Spirit, minister to us, we pray. And where there is resentment and bitterness and frustration and blaming you, Holy Father, we pray for your grace. And anybody here who is experiencing that sense of resentment, show them how to let it go, Lord, and cling tightly onto you. For those who are still experiencing raw wounds of pain from years and years ago, I pray, minister, bring your healing balm to their souls. Restore to us, Lord Jesus, the joy of your salvation. And we pray that you'd prepare our hearts for the work that you're doing in our city, in our nation. Prepare our hearts, even in this barren COVID time. May we be those who are faithful to you or righteous before you. We don't blame you for being absent. We don't abandon you. We don't throw accusations at you. Show us, we pray, how to trust. And Lord, for those who are struggling with doubts, questions that are unanswered, I pray, give them the courage to tell someone. Give them the courage to pull that, that doubt and that question out into the open to turn the light on. That you can bring your light to it, Lord. We pray these things, Jesus, that you would be honored, you would be glorified, and that we would better follow you and better glorify you in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. I'm going to ask the... Yes, Adrian and the brand. Uh, brand. Adrian and the brand to come up here and lead us in a song. And, and depending on how you responded in prayer, this, this song might be quite hard to sing in the sense of saying, I might not be ready to declare it out loud yet, but I do trust you, God. Even in the season of disappointment and pain, I, I want to trust you, I want to trust you. And take that step of faith today that as you sing, in many ways, a declaration of your own heart that you're following him. Thank you.